chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Today, listeners, we have for you one of the ultimate clashes. A, a clash for the ages, one might say. A Cyrano versus Cyrano battle of the wits. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Both alike in dignity. Not exactly. Both alike <laughs> no. on platform. Yes. Both from Netflix. Yes, we have two Netflix Gen Z based Cyrano adaptations. Yes. Who who'd have thunk that Gen Z would be big on the Cyrano de Bergerac? Not not me until we really sat down and thought about it. <laughs> yeah, apparently this is uh this is the new go to. Um, but I feel like they went to very different directions. <laughs> Yes, I feel like we're both going to be of the same mind, although everyone listening, we have not actually discussed in depth Mm-mm. our feelings on these movies in, in twain, so... Um, but, but I feel like I know where you're going to land. Yeah, yeah, all right, well, um, oh god, there's so much to say about these movies and why I think one was made after the other one. Anyway, so the two movies we're talking about today are, you probably have already guessed it, Sierra Burgess is a Loser from 2018 and The Half of It from 2020. Yep, uh, two years apart, but you know, same uh, same basic period of time, same basic age group we're covering. Uh, should I hit him with a Google summary, Eliza? I feel like you uh, know, yeah, we... <laughs> I I think so. I think tell us what uh, what Sierra Burgess and the half of it are about together and uh... apart. <laughs> Well, listeners of the show might remember that infamously Netflix movies have the worst Google descriptions, and I'm not (laughs) sure why that is, if, like, someone at their marketing department just decided not to make in-depth summaries or whatever. But anyway, here we go. Uh, Sierra Burgess is a Loser, The Year of Our Lord 2018. The plot summary is this one sentence. A case of mistaken identity leads to an unexpected romance when a teen joins forces with a popular student to win the heart of her high school crush. Okay, that's one movie. Now I listen mm-hmm. to this. Here's the plot summary of the half of it. The year of our Lord 2020. A shy, introverted student helps the school jock woo a girl whom secretly they both want. Can you uh-huh. spot the differences? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think, you know, for anyone who hasn't watched these, the, the big difference on a, on a broad level that we should hit up first is there is a slight difference in the makeup of the love triangles we've got going on here. Right. In both cases, we have two, uh, two young women and one young man, but the organization of the triangle is quite different. In Sierra Burgess is a loser. You have two young women teaming up to, to win the heart of a young man. And in uh, the half of it, you have a young woman and a young man teaming up to win the heart of a young woman. Yeah. So in Sierra Burgess, it is, I would say falling into the same category as several movies we've talked about recently where it's not gay, but it really should be. And then the half of it, I feel like, is, like, pretty gay, and it should <laughs> yeah. be. Yeah, the half of it was like, okay, fine, we'll make the same movie, but this time we'll actually make it gay. Yeah, so here's my theory, Eliza. I feel like, and and everyone who was, you know, participating in the discourse back in 2018 and the before times might remember that Sierra Burgess is a loser generated a lot of controversy for reasons mm-hmm. that we will probably discuss in depth. <laughs> and I wonder 
if Netflix maybe had the screenplay for the half of it in their back pocket, or maybe even the film, the half of it in their back pocket, and then we're like, oh shit, we fucked up. Time for another Cyrano movie, and we're going to hope everyone forgets about Sierra Burgess as a loser. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, because I feel like when Sierra Burgess came out, Netflix really pushed it and advertised it as being a part of this sort of series of teen rom-coms that they had produced in the last couple of years. Um, things like uh, P.S. to All the Boys I've Loved Before and stuff like that. And they were like, here's another one of these great rom-coms. You know, it's got the, some of the same actors. It's the same, you know, type of story. Like, here we go. And then it was just super panned. And then the half of it, I definitely saw advertised, but like not in the same way. And they definitely didn't push it as being sort of part of this Netflix original um, teen rom-com genre, even though it, it is technically. Um, and I think that that does sort of reflect the fact that one of these is made in a very kind of bubblegum blockbustery sort of way. And one of these feels much more like an indie movie. Mm, I think that's a really good point. Um, and, and makes me think that maybe we should start by talking about Sierra Burgess as a loser, where it falters, and then move on to talking about where the half of it succeeds. Yeah. I mean, I? we're going to try not to talk about where Sierra Burgess as a loser falters for an hour and a half, but we <laughs> super could. Yeah, maybe let's let's start with some of the biggest uh, criticisms that people have lobbed at this movie, mainly the character of Sierra herself. Mm-hmm played by the actress Shannon Purser. Yeah, what what did you think of her character? I found her to be quite an interesting uh, failure as a teen girl character, mostly because <laughs> it was clearly trying... The screenplay was clearly trying to do one thing that it just didn't stick the landing on, which was trying to undermine this trend in teen movies that the kind of nerdy, overlooked girl is always, like, pure of heart, that she's, like, golden in every other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie was actually trying to portray a, t- a teen girl who is a little bit nerdy, who's, who's unpopular, and isn't perfect, you know? She might be smart, but she's not always the kindest person, and she makes a lot of mistakes. But the film... Mm, fails I think in letting her get away with those mistakes anyway yeah they they actually kind of just write an asshole um yeah, and then they're like sucks. this poor girl has been so downtrodden upon in high school no one likes her and no one understands her and you're like actually I think they do understand her and they understand that she kind of sucks yeah, like there's the whole scene that with her guidance counselor where she's talking about her options to go to college and she wants to go to Stanford. And there are all these jokes throughout the movie about the things that you have to do to make yourself exceptional. So in some ways, like I get the I guess that the movie is showing like, oh, she's really not exceptional in this really modern way that she just like doesn't volunteer and she doesn't do anything like magnificent. Yeah, it doesn't get but by doing that, they don't give us a lot to grasp onto about her. You know what I mean? Except for that we know we're supposed to root for her as the underdog. Yeah, I also feel like my big problem with the way they portrayed all of the teens in this movie is that this movie really felt like it's what an adult who grew up in the 80s and doesn't currently have teenagers thinks that Gen Z is like, right? Like it was like an adult who's read about Gen Z thinks that this is what Gen Z is like (laughs) because it all like it sort of hit all of the like big you know, topical buttons. College is so hard to get into now. Gen Z only communicate through their cell phones. You know, all this kind of stuff, but none of it was in a way that was actually realistic. Like that scene in the guidance counselor's office, I feel like either if it was meant to be 
parody and satire, it didn't go far enough. But I don't think it was. I think it was supposed to be like, this is how hard it is to get into Stanford. And they literally have this guidance counselor be like, could you write about having lost a leg? You should write about having lost a leg. And she was like, I'm the top of my class and I volunteer and I, you know, whatever. And I tutor. And she was like, no, that's not good enough. No one will ever consider you for college. And then that was the whole scene. And it was like that. Okay, college is competitive, but it's not like that. Nor did you make this so sort of over the top. You know, I'm thinking like like early seasons of like Glee that really went over the top with the sort of school bureaucracy thing as a commentary. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like that. It was just like an awkward scene where you were watching this girl be told that she was a failure by her guidance counselor. And then nothing came of it. You know, right? Like there was that there, the ways that the kids used their phones did not feel authentic to me at all. (laughs) It felt very kids these days with their technology. Well, yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say about that, considering I I teach a lot of Gen Z uh, young people uh, at the higher at the higher ed level. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, they aren't really texting as much as they're talking on Instagram and TikTok and mm-hmm. through messaging apps that have nothing to do with texting. But that's a whole nother bowl of fish. But I think you're right also that like the the way that Sierra comes off in those scenes, too, is that she doesn't come off as like someone who's pushing against this system she's like someone who's floating inside of it and not resisting it so she just sort Mm -hmm. of seems like i don't know like she's resentful of the fact that college is so competitive to get into which coming from like a white girl whose parents are seemingly well-to-do you know well-regarded artists who went to stanford feels a little bit yuck do you know what i mean yeah i didn't feel bad i'm so mad i can't automatically get into stanford it's like okay yeah, no, I definitely didn't feel like like she was actually going to have trouble getting into college. They also, even her parents, like everything about this movie was definitely a tell, don't show situation. They were like, her mom is a successful, I think, like um, motivational speaker. Her mom is a successful mm-hmm. motivational speaker and her dad was supposed to be a famous writer. But they basically had her mom give her a really like stupid, like motivational cat poster saying at the beginning of the film. And then they told mm-hmm. you her dad was a famous writer six times and had her... And had him quiz her on like Tennyson quotes. And that was it. They were like, this is what famous writers are like in their homes. They just quote other famous writers and then stare at their children until their children say, yep, that was Mark Twain. (laughs) (laughs) Like, as opposed to like her dad and her having conversations where he had really high expectations for her writing. And she, you know, didn't want him to read it because she feared his criticism or you know, her being like, oh, my God, I actually hate my dad's book, but it's all everyone wants to talk to me about. Right. Like there weren't real things. They just were like, we'll make this so that life is hard for this girl, you know. And then the the big thing, obviously, the whole point is the character is supposed to be not attractive by, you know, modern teen standards. She is overweight mm-hmm. and she doesn't worry about her looks and whatever. But she's constantly being told by other people that she is pretty, that she looks nice, that she's whatever. And she's just like, ah. The world doesn't accept me because I'm fat. And as a girl who was on the heavier side in high school and college and adulthood, there are moments when you feel like that, even though the world's not telling it to you. But that experience is not actually just skinny girls coming up to you and being like, you're fat. And then you going home and being like, everyone hates me because I'm fat. Like, that's not how it works. It's much more nuanced and subtle than that. It's more like a friend saying, 
oh, that dress looks really good on you. And then you being like, oh, she means that I couldn't wear the other dress, right? It's not someone saying, wow, you're fat. Like, that's just not like how life works. So when I see those kind of portrayals, (laughs) I get so frustrated because I'm like, this was written by a skinny girl, first of all, Mm. and a skinny girl who's never spoken to a fat woman. (laughs) Oof. Ooh. Uh, yes. And you can tell that, I think, also in how the film contextualizes fatness in general. Mm -hmm. Like, um, the kind of popular girl character, Veronica, her mother is fat. And the way that the film portrays her as this sort of a character that, um, the TV critic Linda Holmes calls the the female grotesque, Mm -hmm. um, is really troubling because the fact that that's the only other fat female character we see in the movie does not really give us a lot of, uh, positive reassurance that Sierra's, you know, good thoughts about her appearance and her encouraging and affirming thoughts about her appearance are okay. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's part of the same issue we had with the truth about cats and dogs where like we're hearing one thing from the the screenplay about how like it doesn't matter what you look like and then the other thing we're hearing from the screenplay is oh isn't that nice that people like you despite what you look like? Oh yeah, for sure. And like when we first meet um the the skinny girl's fat mom i was like oh we're gonna find out that the way she's treated sierra is because like she has a fear of gaining weight or her mom has always been really down on herself and so then she's learned you know that that's a bad thing whatever and then what we find out is the issue between her and her mom is that her mom is obsessed with losing her youth because her Mm -hmm. husband left her for a younger woman and so she's been really hard on her daughter about like experiencing her youth to the most which has nothing to do with the weight thing so you're like so why why did you write it this way if the whole thing is to explain why she's being mean to the heavyset girl about her weight as opposed to like about not you know going to parties or experiencing her youth or like you could have written it that way but instead you were like no what's really the problem with this woman who we've written a whole other psychoanalysis deep dive about the real problem is that she's heavyset it's 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 really not good. It's yeah. It's really yeah, I'm part not sure of this if you general. I hate it. it <laughs> yeah, it's real bad. I think that's also part of this like general thing that I really find surprising about Sierra Burgess is a loser, and that with the first time I saw it, I was shocked by it because the last Netflix rom com I had seen was To All the Boys I Loved Before, which mm-hmm. is so lighthearted and sweet and yeah. genuine. And Sierra Burgess is a loser has this real mean-spirited energy about it like a a number of things that happen in the film are just really quite jaded and dark the the whole thing with veronica's mom is part of that there's also a moment where sierra um sees the object of her affection jamie who doesn't actually know she is the person he's been texting with a la Cyrano de bergerac this whole time and when she and her friend see him in the park sierra pretends to be deaf Mm -hmm. only to find that jamie's brother is deaf and Jamie and his brother both sign to her. And of course, she doesn't know how to sign. It's really yucky. It's oh, really yucky. And it's, it's really mean spirited. It's so cringy and strange and unnecessary. Right? Mm-hmm. Like they could have written a scene where they run into him and she doesn't want to talk. And then she runs away. And he's like, well, that girl was weird. And not have had an entire thing where he and his brother attempt to sign to her. Right? Like, it was so strange, and he's being very kind to her in the scene, and she's being incredibly uncomfortable and socially awkward and incredibly, incredibly inappropriate um, and, you know, cruel to anyone who has an actual um, disability. 
and you're watching the scene like why why am i being forced to witness this and then she never has to apologize for that in the movie it's just mm-hmm. forgiven and that's especially weird because jamie's brother in the script is basically then you sort of are left thinking well did they just make jamie's brother a deaf or hard of hearing person for that joke because yeah. that's super not funny yeah that's really rough um there's also the issue in this movie that um there's pretty much no concept of consent anywhere in this movie yeah um they they take quite advantage advantage of this teenage boy including at one point having him close his eyes and having a different woman kiss him than the woman he thinks he's kissing um but there's also multiple characters are sort of talked into doing things that they don't want to do or they don't realize is what they're being talked into like there's there's no concept of consent in this movie which feels especially jarring considering that i think most of the movies that have come out recently about younger people do address those issues at least peripherally yeah and i I mean it comes up so many different times in different ways i think that kiss scene is extremely cringeworthy (sighs) and it is it is an assault. I mean, that's that's what it mm-hmm. is. They they take advantage. Veronica and Sierra both take advantage of Jamie in the sense that they they this is where this movie really falters is that instead of using the Cyrano de Bergerac plot where you would have Veronica sort of speaking the words of Sierra or sending the text to Sierra, they actually do something more like catfishing. Yeah. Where he he never really gets to know Veronica except for for a very short period of time. And then once he does, Sierra immediately punishes Veronica by sharing a very embarrassing photos and very embarrassing screenshots from her personal social media account with the entire community. So you mm-hmm. get sort of layers upon layers of consent violations and betrayals. Yeah, yeah, that's yet another great example of a lack of consent. And it stems from a scene where her sort of boyfriend who's in college um, is implied to take advantage of her while she's drunk. Possibly they're both drunk in a car and takes a picture of him kissing her while she's not totally consenting to it. Um, and then Sierra gets gets a hold of this picture and then without her consent passes it around to the entire school. So there's like multiple layers of lack of consent. And it's not as if this boy is condemned for his lack of consent moment because it's turned around and someone else takes advantage of it, too. Right. It's just sort of piled on and it's very strange and icky um, and just felt so unnecessary for 2018. Yeah. Well, and and let's talk about the ending, too. I mean, what did you make of the ending, especially considering how these Cyrano stories usually work out? Right. Well, like, here's the thing. You know, as you say, they don't totally do the Cyrano story right, because really it should be where it's almost accidental that the Cyrano character ends up truly being the one to do the wooing, right? Like, it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be that they're attempting to help the other one and then end up sort of taking more control and doing all of it whereas this was much more intentional but also the original Cyrano he does not end up with the girl and I feel like in order to make the ending work as a happy ending a romance ending you have to have some explanation for why the two people still manage to get together they either you have to have someone apologize you have to have someone you know eat crow you have to have someone have a real conversation with the other person Um, You know, even movies that aren't specific Cyrano stories, but are are similar kind of things. You know, I'm thinking of You've Got Mail, 
where there's a whole, you know, two people talking who don't know who they're talking to and one of them really screws up. Half of the movie is him working up to an apology. Yeah. Right? Like half of the movie is him getting to know her better, improving himself and the way he interacts with her so that when he then says like, this is what happened and it's not what I intended, you understand why she might forgive him. I felt no need for Noah Centineo to forgive Sierra Burgess. Yeah, and especially because the last time they see each other, sort of the climactic scene, if you haven't seen this, is at a football game. And so Sierra reveals um, or to the whole community this really embarrassing screenshot from Veronica, which leads to a domino effect um, that leads to Jamie finding out that Veronica and Sierra had been you know, um, playing him and been catfishing him. And he is betrayed because that's an incredible betrayal of his trust. They tricked him. They weren't honest with him. Right. So -hmm. then she gets sad and she writes a song and she sends it to him and to Veronica and Veronica goes to Jamie and basically somehow we don't see this, but she somehow convinces him that like, this was all fine actually. And then he goes to Sierra's home and says to her, and I kid you not, you're my type. Whatever the fuck that means. What? I, what is your type? Someone who lies to you and pretends to be deaf to your deaf brother without an apology. I just, I thought the film was going to be working up to this transformation. Like you Mm -hmm. said of Sierra, where she would like, you know, realize like, hey, maybe just because I'm the put upon, you know, smart girl in school, maybe that doesn't automatically make everything I do the right thing. Right. You know, like that, I think actually would have been a really good moral for high schoolers, you know, just because Mm -hmm. you think you fit some sort of character mold doesn't mean that everything that you do is automatically like the good and subversive thing to do. But instead, they sort of made it like, no, 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 it's it's fine. Like, he's gonna just accept you for who you are, even when you're a jerk. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it felt very out of the blue and very inconsistent with what had happened and unearned. Um, and I think maybe that's a good time to pivot to our other movie that we're discussing this week, the half of it, because I feel like so many places that Sierra Burgess faltered, the half of it did not. Um, and that's not to say that the half of it is a perfect movie either, but I think it it did correct a lot of those mistakes. Um, and I also just think that in general, the interactions felt more authentic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I will point out, I'm looking at this now because I didn't notice this before. Uh, the half of it, written and directed by a woman. Yep. Sierra Amazing. Burgess directed by a man. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not trying to be a misandrist, but I'm just pointing it out. I'm just pointing uh, it out. Yeah. Uh, the, um, Sierra Burgess, I believe, was also was written by a woman, but a woman who has almost no other credits on IMDb, um, writing-wise. So clearly not someone who's... Um, amazing writing prowess has led to lots of other gigs but yeah the half of it uh written and directed by a woman based on her own personal experiences um as an asian teen growing up on the west coast of america um and excuse me as a lesbian asian teen growing up on the west coast of america and she based this on personal experiences she had had with coming out and growing up and you can tell you can really see the the authenticity there This is something that comes up so much when we talk about these screenplays, but specificity, specificity, specificity. I mean, that's what makes this this film really sing is it is the specificity of her real life experience just shines through and makes you invest in these characters and believe them. Yeah. And it makes their actions believable 
and really endearing too. Absolutely. You know, and you also, you get sort of these three characters in this main love triangle and you see all of them interact with other students. You see them interact with their families. You know, at least a little bit about their relationships with their parents and all of those relationships. Some, you know, you go into it deeper than others, of course, but they feel real and they feel like, oh yeah, I went through that. Or I know someone who went through that. Like that seems like an actual interaction that a 17 year old might have with their parents, as opposed to, you know, this big, like mom storming into the room and announcing all of her psychological issues with her daughter in front of her new friend and then walking out, like, just in case you were wondering, like, it wasn't like that. It, you know, it's, they, these were actual scenes of actual family life um, and friendship. And that alone makes the movie just soar so much more before you even get into the specific plot corrections. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to suggest, I mean, although I will, I guess, say that the films we've been the biggest fan of have been the ones that have stuck the closest to Cyrano de Bergerac. I mean, (laughs) if it ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) But this movie also is actually, apart from Roxanne, it is easily the most faithful Cyrano de Bergerac adaptation in terms of its plot structure, right? You have young Paul Munsky who is in love with the beautiful and virtuous and smart Aster Flores. And he goes to local smart girl, uh, Ellie Chu, who is known for writing papers for people. Very plausible explanation for why he would go to her. I loved that. Yep. Um, to write letters to Aster because, and he explains this also, he wants to write letters because he thinks it's old school and romantic. So we don't have to deal with the, you know, the stereotypes and the boring uh, text social media conventions either. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of smart choices being made in the adaptation too. Right. Well, and even within that, the, you know, the whole text thing, I feel like this was a more accurate portrayal of how the current generation of teenagers interact with social media and textual communications. Right. Cause Mm -hmm. like at one point he sends her a text that is super awkward and like jarring does not fit in the style that he's written the letters and she responds weirdly. And so then Um, the solution that the two of them come up with is that Ellie grabs the phone and writes, sorry, that was really dumb. I feel awkward. Can we go over to name this other text platform? And they jump over to this different text platform where she gives her own, um, her own uh, screen name rather than the guys. And then they start having a whole new conversation. And I was like, yeah, that's how people interact, right? Like I'm frequently having conversations with the same person on multiple platforms. And one of those conversations is just like stupid and sending silly videos or whatever. And another conversation is planning when we're getting together next weekend. And another conversation is like a deep discussion about my inner fears, right? And you mm-hmm. don't you don't intermingle those because you're like, at this point, the discussion about my inner fears and anxieties is happening on Facebook Messenger. So the stupid video has to get sent over text, you know, or whatever it is. And even just that little thing felt so much more real and also gave you, gave the writers a way to have the guy mess up, but then have a solution to that problem as well. And I feel like that scene's a really good example, too, of where Ellie Chu, as opposed to Sierra Burgess, is this kind of like hardened exterior smart kid who's been bullied in her small town um, for her race, uh, primarily, um, how she has this kind of hardened exterior, but in her core, she's a good person who wants to help Paul because mm-hmm. he 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 is vulnerable with her. He gives her a reason to care about him, right? right. Like he he makes it clear that his intentions are good, that his intentions are pure, and he is a nice and generous person to be around. So over time, she can sort of peel back her hardened exterior uh, 
and reveal her vulnerabilities as well. And I think that seems a good example of that, right? She offers him a way out of the hole he's dug himself. I don't know that Sierra Burgess would have done that. No. Well, and he also then continually responds in kind. The the real meat of this story is the friendship between the two of them, much more so Mm -hmm. than any of the romantic storylines that are branching off of it. Um, And part of that is that you discover at first he seems quite sort of bumbling and not good with his words and not particularly intelligent. And then you see that he has a real emotional intelligence um, Mm -hmm. that is surprising, but that um, that she finds very endearing. You know, he can see every time that she sort of cuts herself off like they're, you know, practicing banter so that he can get better at talking in front of Aster. And at one point, you know, she asks, uh, um, Ellie asks him a question and he responds and then asks her a question back and she doesn't respond. And when he calls her on it, she's like, well, I don't need to practice. And he said, yeah, you do. And then she tells him something really serious and intimate about her relationship with her mom who died. You know, like he understands her a lot better than she thinks he's going to. And then he's kind to her father and he tells off some bullies for calling her, you know, racially insensitive names. Like he's got all of these real gifts and graces that she didn't take the time to see and that maybe he didn't take the time to show her either. You know, when he first approaches her, he is quite gruff about it. But that relationship, as the two of them discover these sort of hidden qualities in each other is so lovely and endearing yeah i think that your comment about him having this emotional intelligence and her having this sort of like book smart street smart intelligence is so true and it really does uh it does explain why these two characters go so well together Mm -hmm. and their relate and their friendship feels so true even by the end of the film also he's so funny he's such a himbo you know, like he's, he's so just, darling. he's so dumb and so sweet. And by the end of it, you're like, I just want to give you a big hug. And I can't wait for you to take over your family's, you know, deli business <laughs> and just live your best life in this small town. Because I want good things for you, you sweet, dumb, dumb boy. Well, and that's why I feel like this whole movie has such a Gen Z aesthetic in the way that Sierra Burgess does not. Because, yeah, like... It has this like really good hearted quality to it where it sees the good in all of these characters, even Mm when we're seeing other parts of them that are really bad. You know, even some of the characters in the small town are are not are rarely ever these sort of like caricatures of like super evil people. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Or like entirely good people. There's a lot of complexity everywhere. But in general, there's this like light hearted and like genuineness to everything. Yeah. Um, And I feel like that's what made the romantic scenes uh, really uh, pop as well for me. Like, I actually think the scenes between Ellie and Aster have been the most romantic. I think even more so than Roxanne. I think they're just beautifully directed and they made me feel things. Well, can we talk about in our last episode, we talked about how women are not allowed to woo. And in this movie, they let the women woo. (laughs) Let Ellie Chu woo. You know, and that it fucking whole, works. That whole scene with the painting, she you know, she finds out that Aster used to paint, but she doesn't anymore, and that she like misses it. And so she sends her to a blank wall and leaves some spray cans and is like, paint me something. And then once Aster's done, Ellie shows up and paints something on top of it with a little note. And then Aster comes back and paints over it. And it's this beautiful scene that's like so fun and romantic and it's absolutely the kind of big gestury thing that's normally given to the guy and they let this like awkward 17 year old girl come up with it because she's smart and creative so why wouldn't she come up with an out of the box you know thing especially when she's not really 
she doesn't keep with the sort of normal social norms of like the popular kids, she wouldn't necessarily want to just set up a normal date. So it worked for me to have her do that. And then that's what makes Aster totally fall for this person she's talking to because it's such a cool idea. Well, and I think the movie is so smart, too, that unlike um, The Truth About Cats and Dogs and Sierra Burgess, the Cyrano de Bergerac character, in this case, Ellie, is getting to have this sort of separate relationship with Aster, like apart from the letter trick. Like Mm -hmm. there are moments where they see each other in the hallway or in the bathroom or catch eyes across a room and there's definite chemistry there. Like we're not, we, we don't have to see their relationship only develop through this deception. So it feels a lot more, uh, it it feels less sort of uh, a betrayal when it's, when the the deception is revealed. Well, you know, and you also, you get this, this young woman who maybe she's not out, out, but she clearly is aware that she is attracted to women, right? This isn't, this isn't a discovery for her in the same way, so much as it's just sort of discovering how to interact with the world with that knowledge. Yeah, they clearly, they have that scene where they run into each other in the hallway and it's such a great, like, like revision of that, like, high school moment where they run into each other in the hallway and one looks up and is like, oh my God, this beautiful woman, (laughs) you know, but it's like the queer version. I love it. Right. And, but you also get Aster who throughout the movie is mostly depicted as a straight woman, but she has these moments where she's clearly sort of drawn to Ellie. And at the end, she kind of says to her, she's like, look, there's a lot of things I like about you. Maybe if I were a little different, it would be different. I don't know. Maybe I am different. I don't know. Because she's a 17-year-old girl from a small town and she just hasn't given it a lot of thought. And I love that Aster's response is basically, go to art school for two years and then give me a call. <laughs> I was like, what a baller move. Well, and that, yeah, it feel, you're right. It, like, it, I think that's what charmed me too, is that it felt so real and honest to what being a high schooler mm-hmm. is like in terms of romance and sexuality. Like the scene where Aster takes Ellie to her favorite spot, that like sexy little like mm-hmm. hot spring, where it's like lightly sexual, but not explicitly so. And there's like this tension, but it's not... Um, acted upon necessarily but they have this emotional intimacy together that I think when you're a teenager it might as well take the place of physical intimacy Mm -hmm. you know like they 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 may as well have made out in that moment they didn't but you know the whole movie is these moments of of emotional intimacy between people who might also be physically and sexually attracted to each other and between people who aren't right like there's these moments Mm of emotional intimacy between um, Ellie and the guy who she's clearly not attracted to. There's moments between Ellie and her father, between, right? Like there's all these sort of, it's looking at a lot of different kinds of relationships. Um, and I think that there's something really lovely about acknowledging that, that, you know, going through that developmental stage means looking at and reexamining a lot of your relationships, not just the person you have a crush on. Yeah. And I, I, it's definitely reflects a lot of what I've been, I've, I've been reading a lot about love lately. I've been trying to find myself and shit. <laughs> Um, (laughs) and one of the things I've been, one of the the main threads I keep running into made me, uh, came up a lot for me in this movie, which is this idea that like, it's not as simple as like getting to know yourself and knowing what you want to get love. Mm -hmm. Like you also need to learn what it means to love other people as well as you understand how to be loved, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not as simple as like retreating into yourself and self-reflecting. It also requires like reaching out and faltering in the way you connect with people and learning from it. And I feel like Ellie does a lot of that in this movie in a really smart way. Yeah. And you know, the movie lets them all falter. It lets them all make bad decisions. It lets them all, 
make awkward decisions and have to sort of live in those uncomfortable moments. But then it also lets them learn and and support each other through those moments as well. It's just so wholesome. It is. It's very wholesome. I also want to say, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's got this kind of sort of indie movie vibe. Um, and I think having just come off of our uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl month, I feel like this movie accomplishes what a lot of those movies were trying to do so much better. <laughs> like, if you want a movie that talks about the sort of liminal space of being in a small town and questioning who you are and needing to rely on your relationships with others to pull you out of that and back into the real world. I feel like this did such a better job of that than Elizabeth town or, you know, whatever. Like it, I was watching it and I was like, she's so much better at this than like Joseph Gordon Levitt, you know? That is so insightful too, because I love that the movie gives that sort of struggle not just to ellie it's not just like ellie chu doesn't fit in in this town so she's struggling like (laughs) all of these main characters express that in some way or another Mm -hmm. like paul isn't sure what he's gonna do because he's you know got this dream of his sausage tacos um (laughs) and and he's got his family's traditional sausage making business right that's his struggle and then for aster She's got this really religious family, this really traditional boyfriend, but she's not quite sure if that fits with her because she's got the soul of an artist. You know, it's not just the unpopular kids who don't fit in this world. It's like everybody is struggling right. with the strictures of small town life. Oh, well, and it's so it's good. got that sort of garden state vibe, right? Where like everyone they interact with, you know, you've got this this teacher of hers who knows that she's writing everyone's essays, but lets her get away with it because she's so done with being a teacher at this small, shitty high school that she doesn't <laughs> yeah. want to read the shitty papers. And, you know, you've got the this this mom who thinks that her son might be gay because he was Googling stuff about gay people, but it was actually because of his friend. And she, like, doesn't want her son to be gay, but she's willing to accept him, but she doesn't want to have the conversation, right? Like, you've got all of these elements of it. Um, but I just loved the way they all fit together. It's just, it's just, I just gotta say... Uh, writer director Alice Wu, more movies from you because yes. this 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 hit me so well. Like this is up there with one of my favorite movies that we've watched uh, for this show. I just feel like it 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 sets out to do something and achieves it, hits it out of the ballpark. Yeah. It is a it is an ideal uh, teen rom com coming of age story. Just it, it's so lovely and like it has moments. I thought it was a little slow to start. I wasn't fully on board with the whole, um, for lack of a better word, catfishing plan, like right at the beginning, because I wasn't super into the two characters until they started to really come out of their shells. And then suddenly I turned around on it. There is, you know, a classic sort of rom-com misunderstanding moment where everyone stands up to make their declaration and I hid behind a pillow because I was so embarrassed and I hate those scenes so much. Like it's got, you know, things that for some people might be false or might not be their preferred style or whatever, but just like overall it works so well. Yeah. And, and I love too, that it's a good example of a movie that ha- that has sort of the specificity that comes with diverse representation and not trying mm-hmm. to just reproduce a bunch of tropes, but it also has all these like references, like everybody standing up in that church. I just laughed. I laughed <laughs> so hard. I was like, Oh, I get it. So it's like the graduate. It's like every movie ever. Like it's just right. so funny. <laughs> but so it also cheeky. was like so of its time too right yeah. like you get these kids you know interacting mostly over text which like does feel yeah. real if you do it right you get my favorite moment i laughed out loud so hard she finally she goes to a high school party because he makes her go he's like 
no, you're going to come like to this party. Everyone's going to be happy you're there. It's fine. And a bunch of people are coming up to her being like, oh, like, I know we haven't talked, but I think you're cool. And this one girl comes up to her and says that. And then she's like, come on, we're going to go play Drinkers of Catan. I screamed. I was like, <laughs> why haven't I played that game? And they just, and I was like, oh my God, they're playing Drunk Catan. Like what? <laughs> and it was just like such a specific detail that felt like someone was writing about their own experiences, right? Like, I was like, the writer of this movie has played Drinkers of Catan. <laughs> yes, every week. But especially um, our romantic leads, uh, they are Bob, Esther, Ian, and Trey. We are so so thankful for you, especially sticking with us through last week when we didn't have an episode because I was dealing with a um, a natural disaster down here in Texas. Yep. The kind of natural disaster that can only be caused by human beings. <laughs> An unnatural natural disaster. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you for your patience. We appreciate you. Yes, we love you very much. And we love all of our listeners and all of our supporters. You can support us financially on patreon.com slash romcom killjoys, or you can go to our Facebook and our Instagram um, at romcom killjoys to like us and participate in the conversation there. Um, and if you want to support us, you can also go to our merch shop, which is romcomkilljoys.threadless.com and buy bags and notebooks and t-shirts and all kinds of fun stuff all right so the thing about this week that's weird eliza Mm -hmm. is that i feel like we have one film that requires a major antidote and a film that requires a major supplement so what do you have for us (laughs) well you know i kind of think the half of it is the antidote to sierra burgess great we're done it was a nice episode everybody have a great weekend Um, but no, I think I, I can come up with some of both. Um, I mentioned it earlier. I think if what you like about Sierra Burgess or what you would like to like about it is that kind of secret communications, illicit conversations sort of thing, I think that You've Got Mail is really just the choice. It's If, if that's what you want, go and watch the one that did it best. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can never watch You've Got Mail enough times. So uh, for the half of it, I'm going in a slightly different direction than I normally do. I'm going for music. Ooh. Um, I One of the things I really liked about the half of it that we didn't get into is the soundtrack. Um, and part of what I liked is that the soundtrack was a little all over the place. They had music from several different decades that all kind of fit into that sort of liminal space tone of a town that has not moved forward, even when it does. Um, and I enjoyed that quite a bit. So it got me thinking about music that has that kind of vibe. So I'm going to suggest two songs from the 70s, which I think really capture that liminal space, emotional intimacy, emotional vulnerability vibe. If that's what you were vibing with when watching the half of it, here are two songs I think you should go listen to. The first is Same Old Lang Syne by Dan Fogelberg, um, which is a song about a character, theoretically Dan Fogelberg, a musician who comes home for... Um, New Year's, Christmas and New Year's, and runs into an old girlfriend. And then the two of them buy some beers and sit in the car and just talk about what's happened to them in the years since they were together. It is absolutely beautiful poetry. It's sad and bittersweet and lovely um, and definitely has that kind of like stuck back in my old town feel that sometimes you just like are in that headspace. Um, And so go listen to that. And the other one is Janice Ian's At 17, which is about 
looking back at your teen years and realizing that it's hard if you're not the prettiest popular girl. Um, it's very over the top and sentimental and teenage moody. And some days you just you just got to go to that place. My my recommendation is sort of like a similar mood. I feel like we, we've got a mood mm. going on, Eliza. I have mm. one recommendation for both movies, mostly because I feel like the thing that Ellie Chu and Sierra Burgess share is that they are both struggling. They're going on a struggle bus. <laughs> Ellie Chu is struggling because she's stuck in the small town. She's smart. She's been harassed and bullied and she's burgeoning as an adult with her sexuality, with her intelligence, with everything. And Sierra Burgess is struggling with the fact that she's maybe not as good a person as she thought she was. Both of these <laughs> things could be addressed by one of my favorite books, uh, Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar. Uh, the book actually uh, is a collection of letters, uh, advice letters that were written by an anonymous uh, columnist in the rumpus uh, called Dear Sugar. They are extraordinary. They're beautiful and lyrical and heartfelt. And sometimes they're the hard truth that Sierra Burgess needs to hear. And why I love this for a Sierra No de Bergerac adaptation is that for the longest time, these letters were anonymous. When the book was first published, it was published anonymously. But then later, it was revealed that they were written by none other than Cheryl Strayed, the author of Wild. Hmm. Um, yeah, and she went on to uh, do a podcast based on these letters with the original author of Dear Sugar, Steve Almond. I also recommend that version of it. But really, this book is worth picking up if you're ever at a point in your life where you don't know what to do and you're confused and you're hurting and you're just feeling uh, like a tempest of emotions, flip through that book and pick any of the letters, just any of them <laughs> and read one and it will break your heart and reform you. And it's beautiful. So that's uh, tiny, beautiful things by Cheryl Strait. I feel like we're in a melancholy, comforting kind of a mood this week. I feel like the half of it did this to me. It made me feel like, <laughs> Oh man, I'm like in a melancholy upper Pacific Northwest <laughs> feeling. <laughs> Honestly, even my suggestion of You've Got Mail, like that's one of my comfort movies because, you know, I know it well and it has a happy ending. And, you know, it's it's definitely sort of still fits in with the vibe we've got going right now. <laughs> it really does, actually. <laughs> well, I hope all of oh, our dear. listeners have a very comforting uh, weekend and week ahead. We're always thinking about you. Yes. You know. Stay safe. Stay warm. Stay healthy. Thank you for listening to the Romcom Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com/romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a romcom. Not us. Not anyone. See, See you, you next time. time.